Ephesians 2 and read verse 19 through 21. That will be primarily in Galatians this morning, though I will reference other passages. Galatians 2, 19. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, and am I live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The title of this morning's teacher, the teaching is Alive in Christ. Perhaps by the time we're finished this morning, you may conclude that it could be titled also Crucified with Christ or a Living Sacrifice. Because when we're crucified with Christ, but we're first made alive by Christ, we're a living sacrifice. You might also entitled it, Living in Union with Christ or Living in the Grace of Christ. Our text this morning captures and builds upon previous uh, teachings or doctrines that have been covered this camp meeting through Sunday school and through some of the morning teachings. So if we look at our text and we study the doctrines of faith or trust in God, repentance, salvation, consecration, entire sanctification. The more you study these individual uh, doctrines in the Bible, the more you'll see that these doctrines come out into this, in, in this text this morning. Paul uses a number of beautiful analogies or metaphors, we could say, to describe the Christian experience and his own testimony with Christ. Specific analogies to note in Galatians are crucifixion, or being crucified, uh, death, or he says, I, I'm dead, or I died, um, and then also life, or living. So, crucifixion, death, and life. We see in our text that Paul says, I am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. <clears throat> Not I, but Christ liveth in me. Paul was not literally crucified. So um, he wasn't physically crucified. He uses this as an analogy. Being crucified with Christ described uh, uh, what it took uh, to obtain freedom and life in Christ. And also to, to describe his current state in Christ. To be alive in Christ is to be spiritually alive versus being dead in our trespasses and sins. To be alive in Christ is to be truly saved, to have experienced a spiritual resurrection through Jesus Christ. It's not just a mental acceptance, and it's not uh, an emotional experience per se. I mean, when Christ saves us, we might have emotions. But the fact that we have emotions is not evidence that we have been made alive in Christ. To be alive 
is to not be spiritually dead. All contrast these two concepts uh, being spiritually alive and spiritually dead. Just as a corpse is unresponsive to the world around it, so someone who is spiritually dead is unresponsive to the things of God. Uh, just like a corpse does not respond to what's going on around it, the same way somebody that's spiritually dead does not respond to God, to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God, to the voice of God, to the will of God. One who is alive is the opposite of that. Alive in Christ is one who is spiritually resurrected, who lives unto God. Paul said, I, I'm dead to the law that I may live unto God, uh, to be responsive unto God and obedient to God. Not to live in bondage to sin or to the legalism and ritualism uh, of the old uh, sacrificial and ceremonial law. That's the context that Paul's talking about. Somebody that is alive in Christ has been transformed, we see in, in Galatians. Um, when I think of being responsive to God, I think of uh, the words, simple words of an eight or nine-year-old boy. Uh, he's... My son, um, he's now 19 or 20, or 19, he'll be 20 soon. But I remember when he was about eight or nine, being very, after church service, um, very burdened and perplexed. And, and he said, Dad, I'm confused. I don't understand. And he said, when, when the preacher is preaching, and these were his words, and you feel the goodness of God calling uh, something from you or wanting, calling it to pray or to respond. I don't understand why people don't respond always. And I thought, that's a simple uh, illustration of being alive in, in Christ is to be responsive. It's amazing to me that people can sit through these meetings. They sit up, but they're dead spiritually, unaffected by what's going on here. God is good, and His grace can resurrect you spiritually. Before there is resurrection, there must be crucifixion. The cross is the only way out of this world into eternity with God. The Christ work on the cross, coupled with our cooperation and participation, is what we see in this text. Christ work on the cross, coupled with our Cooperation and participation brings uh, resurrection, brings union with Christ. Uh, in order for us to benefit from the work of Christ, we must participate in it. Christ's work on the cross reverses the penalty and restores what was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. Our choice to be crucified with Christ returns to God what was usurped in the Garden of Eden. When we choose to be crucified with Christ, we return to God. We surrender our sovereignty back to God. We make Him Lord of our lives. You cannot be alive in Christ if you have not uh, surrendered sovereignty to Christ. It's to surrender all of our rights back to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God calls us to life that is alive and vibrant. Revived, we can say, responsive to God. But that can only happen if we have been crucified with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul said, Be followers of me, 
even as I also am of Christ. What is what does that look like? We might be tempted to think, well, was Paul pursuing to do great things for God, to raise the dead, to perform healings, to evangelize the world? Was that his mentality? No. Uh, we can look at Philippians 3.10, and he says, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection. That sounds good, doesn't it? I want to be alive. I want to know. I want to be intimately uh, acquainted with Christ and, and, his, and the power of his resurrection. I want to be made alive. We might say, I want to be revived. We often hear uh, uh, requested, pray for a revival. Pray that God would revive me. Well, this part of Paul's uh, desire is more appealing. But what about the rest of the verse? He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. In other words, I want to be like Christ. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And my desire is to be as Christ. I think um, we don't hear, though I know the heart of individuals is to request these kind of prayer requests. But I was thinking, we might hear more requests, pray that God revise me. Or even young people can be tempted to feel, to substitute or mistaken, passionate with being alive in Christ. Or emotional with being alive in Christ. But, you know, perhaps we should have more prayer requests like this. Pray for me. I need to be, I need to crucify my stubborn will. Pray for me. I need to surrender my sovereignty to Christ. Pray for me. I need to be crucified to the world, and the world needs to be crucified to me. I need to crucify carnality. I don't only want to see carnality crucified in my life. I want to see it destroyed. Those prayers will open the windows of heaven. A little context. Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia around AD 53 to address the first major doctrinal controversy that plagued the church in the early years. He had received reports that the churches in Galatia had fallen into error, and specifically there was contention about whether or not Christians needed to obey the Mosaic law. Uh, there were some... Judaizers, uh, Paul refers to them as false brethren, who were insisting that circumcision was necessary in order for Gentiles to be saved. So Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to refute these teachings, to correct false doctrine that these Judaizers were uh, uh, propagating. Paul wrote this letter to reinforce that salvation is by grace through faith with out the works of the Old Testament law. And that leads us to verse 19, which we begin with. He says, For I, I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. So he says, I am dead to the law. To be dead to something, Paul is meaning to have all relationships severed so that it can no longer exercise influence or control over him. Notice he says he's dead to the law, not to everything. He's responsive to Christ, but he's dead to the Old Testament law. I am dead to the law. But he says, I, through the law. So through the law, he, what, he, what he's describing, and as we learn 
uh, more of his testimony in other passages. He, he's saying, through my encounter with the Old Testament law, I encounter sin. I try to obey the law standards, but I constantly fell short of that standard. The Old Testament, the old law convinced me of my utter sinfulness, Paul is saying, and helplessness. And my desperate need of a Savior. The law cannot free me from sin. Christ has made, made us free, he writes in chapter 5, verse 1. The law led him to realize the necessity of abandoning the law and turning to Christ. The law, he, he writes, is a schoolmaster to lead him to Christ, to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So he says, I am completely dead or severed or released from the law and all its legalism. By the way, and sometimes, uh, anytime there's any, uh, in some circles, not around here, praise God, but, but it's in some circles, if there's any talk of holiness, it's, equal, it's quickly equated with, with legalism. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul found release from the law by being crucified with Christ, or by the grace of Christ. So he says, I, in verse 21, uh, and we'll look at verse 20 after we look at verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Or that word frustrate could have been translated, I do not reject or dismiss or diminish the grace of God. No, no, no. He wasn't diminishing it. He wasn't rejecting it. It's to be crucified with Christ. It is the grace of God, which we'll see again. For righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So what did Paul mean? Uh, when he spoke of grace or the grace of Christ, you know, we, th we think of the general definition of grace. It's a merited favor of God getting what we don't deserve. Uh, if we think about grace, we look at the cross. The cross is a beautiful picture of God's justice, God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace. Paul did not preach a weak or a feeble version of grace. He preached a powerful grace. And I'll make a few comments that if you study the, just focus in, uh, primarily in Galatians, you'll see these concepts of grace um, embedded throughout the letter. Grace is not an abstract gift, first of all, uh, from God. It's not something hard to grasp. Actually, in, in, in very vivid uh, uh, way, grace is Christ himself. When Paul encountered um, Christ on the road to Damascus, he didn't uh, just encounter, an, or he didn't encounter a theology or a new ideology that changed him. He, he encountered Christ himself and Christ changed him. So Christ changes us. Christ frees us from uh, the old bondage of sin and gives us life, makes us alive. So in this letter, Paul captures the riches of God's grace beautifully. Grace redeems and adopts sinners into the family of God, makes us heirs with Christ. Grace brings us to know Christ and to have fellowship with Him by His Spirit. Grace produces a new creature, he mentions, to have fellowship uh, with Christ uh, brings us a union, but, but that takes place through a transformation. Grace produces a new creature. Or 
We see forgiveness, we see deliverance, we see victory. 
says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. This is not just a figure of speech. It's actually uh, one of the most uh, significant theological concepts or doctrinal uh, concepts. Like I said, so many other, other doctrines are, are captured in this, in, in this picture that Paul uses to be crucified with Christ. He says, I have allowed my sin nature to be crucified with Christ. My sins, my carnal nature, uh, and my carnal nature have been nailed to the cross. I've died to self. I've died to sin, to the world, and have been made alive in Christ. My old self-righteous life, my sinful life, is dead and gone, and I live no longer that way like I once did. I've been made new. I've been resurrected, he's saying. Been made a new creature. My ego, my will, my way, my rights, my plans, my wishes have been nailed to the cross. I've surrendered all to Christ that I may be one with Christ. We want to be one with Christ. Though it's a sanctifier, they that are sanctified, they that sanctify are all of one. You can't be one with Christ without being made, being made, without being holy. It is our part to surrender entirely, consecrate entirely. And then God purifies us through the blood of Jesus and we're made one. And he says, now Christ liveth in me. He is the Lord of my life. What Paul is describing here when he says, I'm crucified with Christ, is a crisis submission, but also continual Submission to Christ. So what he's saying is, I have been and I am being crucified with Christ. I have surrendered my sovereignty to Christ and I'm continuing in full surrender to Him. Paul had experienced, had that crisis experience with Christ on the road to Damascus. When Jesus appeared to him and he said, Well, will thou have me to do? You're the king. Your Lord, is it you, Lord? What will you have me to do? Christ's submission, total submission. And from that point forward, he led the life of victory, of continual surrender to Christ. This was not just a Paul doctrine or Paul uh, teaching. We know that Jesus introduced this concept of taking up our cross or being crucified. Luke 9, 23 Jesus said, and he said unto them all, to who? Apostolic faith people. To holiness people. He said to them all, if any have willpower, is, he, is this who he's talking to? No, he says, if any man will come after me, anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, and take up his cross. And Luke adds the word daily. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me, Jesus says. This is not an invitation to pursue unnecessary pain or suffering. This is not an invitation to seek martyr status. This is not an invitation to perpetual pain or suffering and misery. Though there is, um, many are the afflictions of the righteous, you know, the rainfall on the just and the unjust. But the, the righteous have plenty of afflictions, but the Lord delivered them out of them all. 
this is an invitation. When Jesus says, take up your cross, it's an invitation to accept the cross. Or we would say the calling that God appoints. We're called to a vibrant life in Christ. We're called to be alive in Christ. But that life comes through being crucified with Christ, and that's a call to perpetual surrender to Christ and His will. This is a victorious life, vibrant life. It's revived. It's filled with Christ. He fuels us. He's the vine with the branches. Uh, He produces fruit in us. The love of God flows through us. It's a life full of holiness and righteousness and joy and peace. So Paul shows us that to be crucified with Christ, or the grace of God, remember, to be crucified with Christ is right there in the grace of God, or the grace of Christ. The grace of God produces liberty. Galatians 5, verse 1, and we'll look at a few verses in chapter 5. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You've been delivered? Stay there. Stand there. We have a responsibility to remain there in the liberty that God has produced in our lives. So we see that grace is not a license to live in any way we want to without eternal consequences. Look at verse 13 and 14. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty. Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Christians are given this beautiful liberty, those that have been saved. But we're not to abuse that liberty or that freedom. We're not lawless. You know, the concept of freedom today is different than what Paul's talking about. We're not autonomous. We're not self-governing. We're subject to the law of Christ, we see it. Galatians 6, 2, we'll go, we'll go back to chapter 5 momentarily, but Galatians 6, 2, he says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're under the law of Christ. We're not all under the old law. We're under the law of love. The love of Christ is the law of love. We're under the lordship and guidance of, of Christ and, and the Holy Spirit. So genuine faith. And Christ does not absolve us of our responsibility to live holy. Look at verse 19 through 24. And I'm not going to define all these words, but Paul is contrasting the works of the flesh or the works of carnality, the fruit of carnality, versus the fruit of the Spirit. So there's a contrasting. Someone said that um, the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit turned upside down. But we'll read these and then we'll, we'll stop at verse 24, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like 
there's more. It just gave us a sampling what the what carnality produces. And then he reminds them. And we need we need to be reminded in this generation when our world uh, has uh, perverted or, or 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 turned the truth of God's word, uh, twisted God's word, even to uh, justify the works of the flesh. But Paul says, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we want to do what we can to study those words, understand what they mean, and several of them begins with our uh, sins of sexuality or uh, sensuality. Uh, but we're going to study what all the works of the flesh are, only in the sense to know that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And now here, let's look at verse 24. And they that are Christ, if you've been saved, you're a Christ. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lusts. So Paul addresses here how man is to deal with carnality. Carnality cannot be controlled by man. Actually, God does not control carnality. God does not suppress carnality. Look at the cross. Carnality must be destroyed. Look at what God did with carnality. He sent Christ to take carnality on him. He was innocent, but he took our sin and our sin nature. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Uh, he took that condition, and then he, uh, the angel told uh, Joseph, I believe, that his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, both from those committed sins and that carnal nature. This is how God deals with carnality. He crucifies it and destroys it. So notice, though, he says, they that are Christ. Notice that Christians are not objects, but rather agents of this crucifixion of the flesh. Or we can also say we're not victims of the crucifixion. Just like Christ, he says, nobody's taking my life. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. Yes, God laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. That was God's part. But we must choose to be crucified with Christ. It's our cooperation and participation in the redemptive work of Christ. In order to benefit us, we must cooperate and participate. And he says, they that are Christ's have crucified. So we're not victims of crucifixion. We're willing participants in the execution of carnality in our lives. Today, in postmodern atheistic ideology, uh, there's this uh, ideology claim that our desires define our personhood. Or the word identity is used often. Some religious circles even have adopted this teaching. But Paul shows us that you and I are not defined by our carnal desires, we're not defined by what we crave. We're born in sin. A carnality will crave things that are unlawful. Believers assume responsibility. 
scripture plenty of times where we're told to flee fornication. Flee idolatry. Some things we don't resist, we don't uh, negotiate, we run from. One other concept on crucifixion that Paul uses, we could turn to Romans 6, 6. Crucifixion was not an instant death. It was actually the beginning of a slow death. You study that and, you know, it's at your own risk, if you will. It's very violent and gruesome. And, but just consider that Paul's using this analogy that wasn't a, a sacred symbol at the time. And, but it was, for some, crucifixion lasted even 36 hours. Paul makes a distinction between carnality being crucified and being destroyed. So Romans 6, 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old man, or carnality, is crucified with him. That happens at salvation. The carnal man is nailed to the cross, and the power of sin is broken, so we can live holy. That carnal man is not getting off the cross unless we choose to come down. But the carnality has been nailed to the cross at salvation. So he said, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. If you continue in Romans 6, you see that he's describing sin or carnality as a governor, as a, a, a tyrant that forces you to do things that you don't want to do. That's what carnality does. So at sanctification, that body of sin is destroyed, that sin nature that oppressive tyrant or governor that caused you to commit sins is destroyed. So, let's turn to Matthew 26 and shift gears up back a bit. Verse 36 through 39. Before there's resurrection, there's crucifixion. Before crucifixion, there's Gethsemane. Let's talk about Gethsemane for a few moments. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he, meaning Jesus, went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So before we are crucified with Christ, we will have Gethsemane moments, let's call them that. Gethsemane is a private place, an intimate place. A Gethsemane moment is a place of wrestling between God's will and our will. Gethsemane moments involve earnest and desperate prayer and faith and trust and surrender and consecration. Our will is crucified in Gethsemane in private before anyone sees it publicly. How 
much time do we need to spend in Gethsemane? Jesus took some time. He prayed three times. Well, we need to spend as much time in Gethsemane until we relinquish control, full control unto God. There are crisis moments in Gethsemane like salvation, sanctification, and baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, but I should say, before those blessings come down, there are Gethsemane moments. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Make sure you're crucified with Christ. And to make sure you're crucified with Christ, go to Gethsemane and hide yourself with God. And deal with what God is calling out of you. As life progresses, so there are crisis moments where we have uh, moments in, in Gethsemane where we surrender to God. I think of, of a crisis moment when I was 12 years old. Uh, I was at my first youth camp. I'll, I won't give you my testimony here, but only to say that on the, on the Wednesday night, somebody asked me to pray, and I began to pray. God's grace used the people praying with me to give me the words to pray. And uh, uh, I began to pray. I didn't. I was brought up in a Christian home, not that was like faith. But God used uh, others' words and others' prayers to give me that prayer, the prayer of surrender. And the Lord, so my Gethsemane moment uh, was about three hours that night. And then that night, there was a lot of, a lot of surrendering, but there were multiple moments, if you will, of Gethsemane. But I walked away from that moment saying, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do. And that night, the Lord saved me. He sanctified me and baptized me with His Holy Spirit. So we don't have to have long Gethsemane moments. That's not necessary. So I think about that. And in this case, it was a three-hour so Gethsemane moment. But when I was about 20 years old, all right, you could do the math if you want. That's 25 years ago. I was sitting about where Brother Gordon is. Right there on the front. No, I wasn't sitting. I was praying. And um, my pastor at the time was Brother Tom Prescott. And everybody was praying. It's an altar meeting. Nobody knew what had, what had happened except Brother Tom, me, and God. Brother Tom came by. He said, John, he interrupted my prayer. And he said, John, I just want you to know that I know that your previous pastor, Brother Gilbert Olson, talked to you about preaching. And I just want you to know that I know. And I thought it would be a good place for you to know that at camp meeting. And he said one more thing. He said, oh, by the way, sometimes when God calls something out of us, the devil may try to scare you and tell you that, you know, if you uh, answer the call to preach, you may have to preach at camp meeting. And... Um, and, and he says, and in 20 years of pastoring, I've never preached that camp meeting. Of course, he has since. And I just want you to know this. Well, for the, that was about halfway through camp. For the rest of camp, I and I just began dating at that point. No, we were just talking. We weren't even dating yet. But uh, I remember her saying that I went through, that walked through downtown with the weight of the world on my shoulders, and she didn't know why. Well... Here's a Gethsemane moment that lasted six months. For six months, God and I wrestled. God doesn't compromise. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. So prayer meeting after prayer meeting, 
oh, there are times in, in, in the parking garage at school, there were times around the altars, and, and God would call me, and it was a calling from God. Uh, the mantle came from God, uh, to, uh, but, but like Elijah and Elisha, but, the, but my pastor was just the one that brought the message to me. But God, the call came from God, and for six months I said, God, you know, I love you. You know, I'm going to do your will. I just can't. I have really good logical reasons. I stutter. English is my second language. I've, I've always dreaded public speaking. You know, I can go on and on. And the Lord graciously, lovingly brought me along. One consecration at a time. We don't want to rush to... Uh, uh, to claim that we're alive in Christ, or if we're saved, we're alive in Christ, but, but to be vibrantly living alive and responsive to the things of God and, and, and to think we're fully in the will of God when we haven't dealt with Gethsemane and with crucifixion, being crucified with Christ. Spend more time in Gethsemane and, and being crucified with Christ. Stay on the cross where there's freedom. Well, six months later, I finally got to the point where I said, okay, Lord, I'm willing. There came a point when Jesus said, it's time to go. Well, I, I, I was willing, but I didn't tell anyone. But the Lord dealt with that, and the rest is history. Are we, once we are on the cross, if we have been crucified with Christ, are we, are we ever tempted to come down? the cross. Matthew 27, verse 39 and 40, says, They that passed by reviled him, speaking of Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus was tempted to come down. Aren't you glad he didn't? Can you imagine how hard it was for him to stay on the cross given the fact that he had the power to come off? It wasn't hard. A better question is, can you imagine the love of God that kept him there? We're not somehow powering through in, in misery. I want to stay crucified with Christ. No, it's the love of Christ that keeps us there. The love of Christ constrains us. But we will be tempted to come down. You don't have to take this, Jesus. Come down. But he stayed on the cross. You know, sometimes, and we won't read it, but sometimes um, it's watching your own loved ones suffer. People will, will hold on to their integrity, to their testimony, through difficult things. But then their loved ones, their children, their parents, somebody close to them, spouse, is suffering. And, and during those times, we could be tempted to come down, step, step away from our consecration, from, the, from where we surrendered. Notice what Jesus did. He comforted Mary from the cross. We also comfort others, but from a place where we don't compromise our integrity. Galatians 6.14 will be the last scripture of Paul said, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Through Christ's cross, 
there's three crosses. Christ crucified, the world is crucified, and I am crucified, Paul says. The world and I, because of the cross of Christ, have no, nothing to do with each other. I've severed my relationship. I'm crucified to the world, and the world's crucified to me. Because I've severed my relationship, I've turned my back on the world, the world's turned its back on me. But my desire is to glory in the cross. I just want to cherish the cross. And let go of anything that hinders, just like cherishing the cross until all our trophies, that's what Paul is saying, are laid down. We're going to have a time to pray. You know what the call is? To be crucified with Christ. And that's where life begins. That's, that's where life thrives, where there's victory. Let's sing number 82. <laughs> 